Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we discuss cases that involve corruption and negligence from the people that we are expected to trust. These cases range from the police ignoring protocol to corporations placing people's lives in jeopardy in order to maximize profit. Today, I'm drinking some apple spiced wine out of a Frida Kahlo wine glass. What about you, Del? Oh, we're fancy today. I'm having a twisted tea, so something really simple for this really complicated case. Yeah, don't drink too much if you're drinking along with us, because there's lots and lots of details. On this week's episode, we will dive into the crimes and allegations against Jeffrey Epstein. Last week, we spoke about the Johnny Gosh case and how his disappearance could be tied to human sex trafficking. When thinking about sex trafficking in the modern era, Jeffrey Epstein is the name that comes to most people's mind. His name is now synonymous with the rich and powerful exploiting their positions to fulfill their wicked fantasies. Jeffrey Epstein was born on January 20th, 1953 in Brooklyn, New York. His parents were Jewish immigrants who married shortly before his birth. His mother Pauline worked as a school aide and his father Seymour worked as a groundskeeper for the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. Epstein had one older brother Mark and they grew up in a working class neighborhood. Epstein attended public schools and attended New York University but left the school with Without graduating in 1974. Epstein's route to being an alleged billionaire started right after college. In September of 1974, Epstein started working at the Dalton School as a physics and mathematics teacher. He was able to obtain this job despite not having any credentials, and this was attributed to the then headmaster, Donald Barr, who was said to have unconventional hiring methods. Epstein is alleged to have been inappropriate with the underage student. During his time at Dalton, he befriended Alan Greenberg. Greenberg was the CEO of Bear Stearns at the time. In June of 1974, Epstein was fired from Dalton due to poor performance. He was quickly hired at Bear Stearns. Epstein started as a junior assistant to a floor trader. He excelled in this sector and was promoted to options trader. This promotion helped him gain access to the firm's wealthiest clients, including Seagram's president, Elgerd Bronfman. He became a limited partner in 1980, which means he started to get a share of company profit. This didn't last long because he was asked to quit in 1981. His termination was attributed to a Regulation D violation, which is a violation of the Securities Act of 1933, which along with other things regulates hedge funds. Even after his termination, he remained friends with Greenberg and was a client of Bear Stearns until it dissolved in 2008. Epstein founded his own consulting firm, Intercontinental Assets Group, in 1981. And I just have to say, all of these types of like financial groups and businesses always have these vague names like that. The company purported to help clients recover stolen money from brokers and lawyers. This business connected him to very powerful people, including Adnan Khashoggi, Jamal Khashoggi's uncle. During this time, he also had connections within the intelligence community. Epstein is alleged to have professed to be an intelligence agent. He had multiple passports, including ones for Saudi Arabia and Austria. Along with Khashoggi, Epstein was in contact with many defense contractors, including Stephen Hoffenberg. Hoffenberg hired Epstein in 1987 to work as a debt collector at Towers Financial Corporation. Epstein was given a salary of $25,000 per month, which is $56,000 in today's dollars. Towers was then changed to a corporate raid company with unsuccessful attempts to buy Pan American Airways and Emory 
Free Air Freight Corporation. Epstein was starting to grow accustomed to living a lavish lifestyle. He started using Hoffenberg's private jet for his travels, and in 1993, it was discovered that Towers Financial Corporation was one of the biggest Ponzi schemes in American history. It lost its investors over $450 million, which is almost $800 million in today's currency. Hoffenberg claimed that Epstein was involved, but Epstein was never charged with this massive case of investor fraud. While still working for Hoffenberg, Epstein found a financial consulting firm, J. Epstein and Company. This company claims to have worked exclusively with billionaires, but it's unlikely that they limited their clientele based on net worth. He did have one billionaire on his client role, and that was the CEO of the L brand and Victoria's Secret, Leslie Wexner. Wexner made Epstein his power of attorney in July 1991, which granted Epstein over unlimited amounts of control of Wexner's affairs. In 1995, he became the director of the Wexner Foundation and is believed to have made millions off of fees charged to Wexner's estate. This connection also gave him access to models and he frequently attended Victoria's Secret fashion shows. Epstein changed the name of his company to Financial Trust Company and based it out of the Virgin Islands for tax benefits. By relocating to the U.S. Virgin Islands, Epstein was able to reduce federal income taxes by 90%. The U.S. Virgin Islands acted as an offshore tax haven while at the same time offering the advantages of being part of the United States banking system. Between 2002 and 2005, Epstein invested $80 million in the DB's Wern Special Opportunities Hedge Fund. By November 2016, his investment had grown to $140 million, which was around the time of his first case in Florida. We are going to get into the crimes and other allegations against Jeffrey Epstein. In order to paint a complete picture, we will be discussing very graphic content. We may never know what role many prominent and powerful people played in this case. We will look at these allegations as purely speculative and we are not making any accusations against anyone. In March of 2005, an anonymous woman contacted the Palm Beach Police Department in Florida. She alleged that her 14-year-old stepdaughter was taken to Epstein's mansion by an older girl. She alleged that she was paid $300 to strip and massage Epstein. Epstein's Florida mansion had various concealed cameras in order to allegedly record prominent people engaging in sexual activity with minors. Epstein's private island also had concealed cameras throughout. These cameras are believed to serve as an insurance policy and blackmail material. Maria Farmer, who alleged that she was sexually assaulted by Epstein, worked for Epstein in 1996. She said that Epstein had a media room in his New York mansion that enabled him to monitor people and that the media room was accessible through a hidden door. Palm Beach Police Chief Michael Ritter accused Palm Beach County State Prosecutor Barry Kushner of being too lenient and wanted the FBI to investigate, and they soon joined the investigation. The police then alleged that Epstein had paid several underage girls to perform sexual acts on him. The youngest was 14, and there were five alleged victims. Witnesses said that a high school transcript and other items pointed to the age of the girls were found in the trash. When the police searched Epstein's home, they found photos of girls throughout the house. Adriana Ross was Epstein's assistant, and she reportedly removed computer drives because the police were going to begin their search. Another employee told the police that 
that Epstein would get massages three times a day. The FBI compiled a report that included 34 confirmed victims. Journalist Julie Brown investigated and identified 80 victims and located 60 of them. Chief Ritter said that all the alleged victims had similar stories about Epstein. She also reported that there was 12-year-old triplets that were flown from France for Epstein's birthday. They were allegedly flown back to France the following day after being molested by Epstein. In May 2006, the Palm Beach police filed a probable cause affidavit that stated Epstein should be charged with four accounts of unlawful sex with a minor and one count of sexual abuse. The state prosecutor only presented evidence from two victims and the grand jury charged Epstein with one felony charge of felony solicitation of prostitution. In August of 2006, Epstein pled not guilty. He enlisted the help of defense attorneys Roy Black, Alan Dertzerit, and Ken Starr. Like we stated before, the FBI began its own investigation in July 2006 and they nicknamed it Operation Leap Year, and it resulted in a 53-page indictment in July 2007. And this is where things get weirder and corrupt because Epstein got the sweetheart of sweetheart deals. The reasons for this are the subject of much speculation. Then U.S. Attorney General for the Southern District of Florida, Alexander Acosta, negotiated the plea deal with Alan Dershowitz. This granted immunity from all federal criminal charges to Epstein and four named co-conspirators, as well as any potential unnamed co-conspirators. This is known as a non-prosecution agreement, and according to the Miami Herald, the NPA shut down an FBI probe into whether there were more victims and which powerful people were involved with Epstein. This agreement was kept from the victims, despite there being a law that the victims must be informed of any plea deal in order to formally oppose. Acosta later admitted that the very lenient plea deal was due to Epstein being above his pay grade and belonging to intelligence. Epstein also agreed to plead guilty in Florida, register as a sex offender, and pay restitution to the three dozen victims identified by the FBI. And of course, Epstein skirted almost all of these provisions. He did plead guilty in Florida, but he was housed in the private wing of the Palm Beach County stockade, even though sex offenders are usually sent to state prison. He was sentenced to 18 months and allowed to leave jail after three and a half months on work release, even though sex offenders are not supposed to have this privilege. This work release was also against the sheriff's own policy of having offenders serve at least 10 months. Even though the work release was supposed to be for 12 hours a day and 6 days a week, Epstein was able to come and go as he pleased. Epstein's cell door was left unlocked and he had access to an attorney room that had a television that was installed for him. Imagine a regular prisoner having these types of privileges. It's unheard of. Epstein's nonprofit organization that was set up for his jail time paid the Palm County Sheriff's Office $128,000 for the extra services, which is not shady at all, right? Since when do jails take money to cater to felons? It, it goes against everything that the criminal justice system should be doing, in my opinion. Epstein's office was monitored by permit deputies, and they were required to wear suits and check in as welcomed guests. The logs of their visits were later destroyed. The Sheriff's office said it was policy, but the visitor's logs for the jail weren't destroyed. Epstein was also allowed to use his own driver to take him between jail, his office, and other appointments. After serving 13 months, Epstein was released from jail and placed on house arrest for one year. His house arrest was similar to his jail term due to the fact that the rules of house arrest seemed to just not apply to him. He was allowed numerous trips on his corporate jet to his residences in Manhattan and the U.S. Virgin Islands. He was allowed 
long shopping trips and to walk around Palm Beach for exercise. When confronted with evidence that Epstein was violating his parole on an almost daily basis, the probation team allegedly said, quote, what do you want us to do? He's a celebrity. This act of people and agencies bending over backward to accommodate Epstein was not limited to the state of Florida. After a contested hearing in January 2011 and an appeal, he was required to register in New York State as a level three high risk of repeat offense sex offender, which is a lifelong designation. During that hearing, the Manhattan District Attorney argued unsuccessfully that the level should be reduced to a lower risk level one and was criticized by the judge. On June 18, 2010, Epstein's former house manager, Alfredo Rodriguez, was sentenced to 18 months incarceration after being convicted on an obstruction charge for failing to turn over evidence to the police and subsequently trying to sell a journal in which he had recorded Epstein's activities. FBI Special Agent Christina Pryor reviewed the materials and agreed that the information was, quote, extremely useful in investigating and prosecuting the case, including the names and contact information of material witnesses and additional victims. Almost 10 years later, on July 6, 2019, Epstein was arrested in New Jersey on new sex trafficking charges. He was housed at the Metropolitan Correctional Center, which also once housed John Gotti, El Chapo, and Paul Manafort. Keep that name in mind because it's super important to this case. A search of his townhouse turned up evidence of sex trafficking and also found hundreds and perhaps thousands of sexually suggestive photographs of fully or partially nude females. Some of the photos were confirmed to be those of underage females. In a locked safe, CDs were found with handwritten labels, including the descriptions, quote, young name plus name, end quote, quote, miscellaneous nude one, end quote, end quote, girl picks nude, end quote. Also found in the safe were $70,000 in cash, 48 diamonds, and a fraudulent Austrian passport, which expired in 1987. And it had Epstein's photo on it, but another name. This passport had numerous entrance and exit stamps, including interest stamps that showed the use of the passport to enter France, Spain, the United Kingdom, and Saudi Arabia in the 1980s. Epstein's lawyer claimed that the fake passport was needed to hide Epstein's Jewish heritage. On July 8th, prosecutors from the Southern District of New York charged Epstein with sex trafficking, and conspiracy to traffic minors for sex. Judge Kenneth Mara had to decide whether the non-prosecution agreement protected Epstein from the more serious charges. Epstein continued to try and get preferential treatment. He requested that he be released on a $100 million bond and placed on house arrest in New York. Judge Richard Berman denied the request on July 18th, stating that Epstein posed a danger to the public and was a serious flight risk. On July 23rd, Epstein was found injured at at 1.30 a.m. on the floor of his cell and was suspected as having attempted to commit suicide. Epstein recalled nothing from the incident but believed he was attacked by his cellmate. After that incident, he was placed on a suicide watch but then suspiciously removed six days later. This special housing unit had a requirement that Epstein have a cellmate and that a guard would check in on his cell every 30 minutes. On August 9, 2019, Epstein's cellmate was transferred out with no replacement. That 
same day, the guards violated policy and did not complete the requirement for 30-minute check. The guards then falsified the records from that night. The two cameras that were in front of Epstein's cell weren't working that night. On August 10th, at 6.30 a.m., Epstein was found dead in his cell at the Metropolitan Correctional Center. The Bureau of Prisons stated that life-saving measures were started and Epstein was transferred to a hospital. Later that day, United States Attorney General William Barr called Epstein's death an apparent suicide, but that they were waiting on an autopsy for a final determination. An autopsy was performed on August 11th and found that Epstein sustained multiple breaks in his neck. The breaks they found could be found in people that hung themselves, but were more commonly found in people that were the victims of a homicide. The New York City medical examiner, Barbara Sampson, ruled Epstein's death a suicide by hanging. Epstein's defense lawyers were not satisfied with the conclusion of the medical examiner and conducted their own independent investigation into the cause of Epstein's death. And they said they would take legal action if necessary in order to view camera footage from near his cell on the night of his death. Epstein's lawyer said that the evidence concerning Epstein's death was, quote, far more consistent with murder than suicide. On September 5th, Epstein's body was buried in an unmarked grave next to those of his parents in the I.J. Morris Star of David Cemetery in Palm Beach, Florida. Attorney General Barr ordered an investigation by the Department of Justice Inspector General in addition to the investigation by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, saying that he was appalled by Epstein's death in federal custody. Two days later, Barr said there had been serious irregularities in the prison's handling of Epstein, promising, quote, we will get to the bottom of what happened and there will be accountability, end quote. On November 19, 2019, federal prosecutors in New York charged Metropolitan Correctional Center guards Michael Thomas and Tova Knoll with creating false records and with conspiracy after video footage obtained by prosecutors revealed that Epstein had, against regulation, been in his cell unchecked for eight hours prior to being found dead. Due to his untimely death, Many questions still remain of the extent of Epstein's crimes. Epstein's alleged sex trafficking and serial sexual assault was enabled by a fleet of private planes. In many years, Epstein logged 600 hours or more of flight time, and people dubbed Epstein's 727 the Lolita Express due to their frequent arrival of apparently underage women. Former President Bill Clinton is believed to have taken 26 trips, Harvard professor and lawyer Alan Dershowitz 12, actor and comedian Chris Tucker, 11, actor Kevin Spacey, 11, model Naomi Campbell, 4, and Prince Andrew, 4. Current President Donald Trump and tech billionaire Bill Gates are believed to have taken one flight each on the Lolita Express. Former reporter Walter Cronkite is also listed as having taken one flight. In 2015, the public obtained Jeffrey Epstein's Little Black Book. The book included names like former mayor of New York City Mike Bloomberg, former Prime Minister of the UK Tony Blair, magician David Blaine, singer Chris Brown, and Naomi Campbell, along with others. There were a total of 1,510 names, which included royalty, politicians, celebrities, and more. Being in this little black book does not indicate or prove any crimes were committed. Epstein drew the attention of the media by hosting former President Bill Clinton, along with actors Kevin Spacey and Chris Tucker, on a 2002 tour of Africa with spots in South Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, Rwanda, and Mozambique, associated with 
with work for the Clinton Foundation. Clinton shared 11 flights aboard the Lolita Express with Ghislaine Maxwell and Epstein's former assistant, Sarah Kellen, who has been accused in court filings of recruiting young girls acting as a pimp on Epstein's behalf. On multiple flights, additional women listed in the flight logs by their first name or the simple descriptor, female, joined Clinton aboard Epstein's plane. A statement released by Clinton's office acknowledges only the African tour. Virginia Roberts Dufre worked at Mar-a-Lago before describing the coercion that led her to become Epstein's alleged sex slave beginning at the age of 16. Roberts alleges that Epstein directed her to have sex with Prince Andrew and did not work alone. He had a number of alleged accomplices that helped his procured underage girls and kept the alleged illicit acts under wraps. She also claims that she was abused by attorney Alan Dershowitz. In addition to the Lolita Express, Epstein also owns the Little St. James Island in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Epstein owned the 70-acre island from 1999 until his death in 2019. Locals allegedly nicknamed the island, quote, the Island of Sin and, quote, Pedophile Island. These nicknames were due to the horrors that some have speculated took place on the island under the watchful eye of Epstein and his accomplices. According to a former staffer, Epstein insisted on secrecy from his employees. Epstein's main accomplice is alleged to be his former girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell. Aside from Epstein himself, the most frequent flyer on his jets was Ghislaine Maxwell with 520 trips. Epstein and Ghislaine met as early as 1988 through her father, Robert Maxwell. This information came from convicted con artist Steve Hoffenberg, who we talked about earlier. He also claimed that Epstein and Robert Maxwell had business dealings together. Maxwell was arrested in Bradford, New Hampshire by the FBI and was charged with enticement of minors, sex trafficking of children, and perjury. Maxwell holds citizenship with the U.S., U.K., and France. Maxwell was denied bail as a flight risk amid concerns regarding her, quote, completely opaque finances, her skill at living and hiding, and the fact that France does not extradite its citizens. She pleaded not guilty to the charges on July 14, 2020, and the U.S. Virgin Islands has also started an investigation into Maxwell's alleged crimes within their territory. After Maxwell, Sarah Kellen, with 350 flights, is the next most frequent flyer. Kellen has been described described by Epstein's victims as Maxwell's assistant. Kellen is said to have kept names and numbers of girls who gave Epstein erotic massages and occasionally showed them to the massage table or coached the girls on what to do. It's also been said that Kellen would call girls to see who was available to work when Epstein wanted a massage. Emmy Taylor, a British musician and actress, is believed to have flown on Epstein's jets 190 times. Taylor has also been named as allegedly helping Maxwell with organizing Epstein's illegal actions with underage girls. One of Epstein's victims also named Taylor as having shown her how to please Epstein. Before we start our discussion, we're going to introduce a new weekly segment called the You Done Good Award. Each week, we'll give the award to someone in the case who did their job and generally did good. Our winners today are Epstein's victims for having the bravery to come forward, former Palm Beach Chief of Police Michael Ritter for fighting against injustice, the private investigators who helped the victims and outed Epstein on violating probation, and of course, the defense attorney who asked Epstein in a deposition if he had an egg-shaped penis. We just, we love that sass and going after a monster. I mean, I really, he 
is the epitome of evil to me. I agree with you. And that's because Epstein's crimes allegedly include the trafficking of minors for the purpose of sex with him and his associates. Sex trafficking is a form of slavery in which individuals perform commercial sex through the use of force, fraud, or coercion. Minors under the age of 18 engaging in commercial sex are considered to be victims of human trafficking regardless of the use of force, fraud, or coercion. And before we get into some stats about sex trafficking, I just want us to be aware of the differences between trafficking and smuggling. Trafficking is based on exploitation and does not require movement across borders. Smuggling is based on movement and involves moving a person across the country's border without that person's consent in violation of immigration laws. The International Labor Organization and Walk Free Foundation estimate that there are 4.8 million people trapped in forced sexual exploitation globally. In 2019, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children estimated that one in six endangered runaways reported to them that they were likely sex trafficking victims. Just something to consider that people who purchase commercial sex increases the demand for commercial sex and likewise provide a profit incentive for traffickers. I know a lot of times, and Jenny, you've probably heard this too, where it says, why are you arresting the Johns? Just arrest the girls. And it's like, no, prostitution has multiple angles. And if you're going to arrest someone for being a prostitute, you definitely need to arrest someone for paying for that prostitute. Yeah, it's not that simple. And I mean, there's a reason why people say prostitution and sex work are the oldest professions. I mean, no one just started doing that. They didn't just have a crazy idea and then start a business. There was clearly a demand. Some have described Epstein's ring in Florida as a molestation pyramid scheme. And that's because teenage girls would be paid to recruit other teenage girls to massage Epstein. The girls at the top wouldn't have to have sex with Epstein, but they would still get paid if they brought other girls in. And remember, the recruiters were teenage girls and they also need to be considered victims. Like other traffickers, Epstein was able to manipulate his victims. He acted like he was a friend to some of them. He even sent one of the victims flowers when she performed in a school play. Many of the girls were from West Palm Beach, which is a lower income area, and many of them came from broken homes and faced past physical and sexual abuse in their lives. Traffickers tend to go after vulnerable people like this, and that goes for adult victims of human trafficking as well. And that's because they're easier to manipulate and rope in, unfortunately. It's people that kind of are lost in life and they don't have a good sense of self. Recruiters were made to feel special and were given opportunities like education and networking. And in some victims' cases, he paid for their entire well-being, including food and their housing. And this brings up the situation that Johnny Gosh's mom, Noreen, was talking about when she described the difference between being a pedophile and being low income and being a pedophile and having a higher income. Because this would not be okay, regardless of your income level. But I don't think that people would turn a blind eye to it as much if it was a poorer individual. Yeah, I definitely agree. I love Noreen so much. She, I guess, is the honorary you done good award since we didn't start it in that case. But she really, like I said in that episode, she really brought everything into perspective for me too. And I hope other people can see it that way if you already weren't thinking of it in those terms. During Epstein's deposition for his crimes in 2006, his attorneys went after accusers hard and in a personal way. And this is one of the reasons why victims of human trafficking and of all kinds of sexual violence don't come 
forward often. Sexual violence is one of the only crimes where a victim's character comes into play. We often hear, well, they shouldn't have been drinking. They shouldn't have been wearing that. Why were they alone at night? But we wouldn't blame a murder victim for getting killed or a carjacking victim for driving their car, would we? Epstein's defense team brought in aspects of the victim's personal lives, including asking whether or not an accuser had had three abortions. They attempted to discredit them at every turn and make their story seem less believable. They alleged that some were just jealous and they wanted attention, which is like the classic defense against an accuser, that someone just wants money and attention and they're making every up. A lot of victims of sexual violence and human trafficking are scared to come forward because they think no one will believe them and they're often threatened and feel like their families are in danger. Almost every victim interviewed in the Netflix Jeffrey Epstein documentary felt like Epstein was going to hurt them if they didn't say no to him during the sexual assaults and rapes. Epstein also had private investigators and others intimidate victims and police. Ghislaine Maxwell threatened people and Epstein himself threatened others too. And this leads to this major culture of silence that we have that protects bad people. And that's kind of within every facet of crime, not just human trafficking and, you know, rich people. It's everyone. Often when you read about sex trafficking of children and adults, the victims are referred to as prostitutes. And that's something that really irritates and upsets me because this isn't the case when someone is forced to sell their body. Some reports called Epstein's victims quote, underage prostitutes, underage women, and Virginia Roberts was called a former prostitute. And this is from TV shows, podcasts, newspaper headlines, everything. Sexual slavery is a more appropriate term than a prostitute. And this is especially true for children who can't consent. I mean, an underage woman an underage woman is a girl. Why would you even say that? It, in my opinion, it doesn't make any sense. The alleged victims were middle school and high school girls who were taken advantage of. And we often were calling them women, but a majority of the victims weren't. Epstein's reputation was sometimes even cleaned up in headlines. I saw him referred to several times as former financier or as disgraced financier. And I know for legal reasons, you can't say, you know, sex trafficker, you know, in headlines. But I mean, disgraced financier, I don't even I don't think that really covers it all. It doesn't whatsoever. There are so many different things that you can call him that allow you to get around our stupid legal system. So call him a felon call him a sex predator, which is true because that is what New York State designated him as. Call him anything you want, but do not minimize what he did to so many different girls and women. And don't minimize his victim's pain by painting him as just this financier who had a bad day. I think um, minimizing is such a great word to use for this case, Del, and that's especially when we talk about what he's doing and we need to consider our culture and our society and how this minimization can lead to the normalization of sexualizing young girls. It's unfortunately a very common thing, hypersexualization of women and girls in Western culture, particularly American culture, where when we talk about Jeffrey Epstein's plane, we said the nickname was the Lolita Express, and that comes from the literary classic where an older man falls for a younger girl. And that term Lolita is such a normal part of our language, and it really kind of goes to show that it's accepted for men to lust after young women and girls, or that it's normal to just be attracted to girls, teenage girls, and 
there's really nothing wrong with that. I'm sure everyone is familiar with R. Kelly, and I'm sure tons of you have seen the Lifetime docuseries that they did on him. And I remember one of his family members really not seeing an issue, and they just thought he had an interest in young women and girls, and that that was just who he was attracted to. It was just like a preference. And even when it is legal. It's not uncommon for men to date women 10 or so years their junior. We see this all the time in Hollywood. And speaking of how Hollywood can kind of normalize young girls, um, I don't know if you remember this, Del, but back in like the 2000s, the early mid-2000s, our favorite time period, um, do you remember the countdown clocks for when like female celebrities were turning 18? I do. I remember so many of them. And they just had one um, recently for Billie Eilish and they had one for Kylie Jenner. And I'm like, what are you doing? Is this really what you want to spend your time on? I That makes me so sad. I really thought they were like done for. But I remember the Olsen twins had them, Lindsay Lohan. It was like every, I feel like teenage celebrity that was kind of maybe like a rite of passage, unfortunately, to have these like gross men make a website like that they can't wait till you turn 18 because of course you're going to pay attention to them, right? And the thing is, you don't see that with male celebrities. There was no countdown to when Leonardo DiCaprio was turning 18. There was no countdown down for any of the male child stars that were turning 18 it's just for the female yeah i will say recent in recent years the only like real male story i can think of is finn wolfhard from stranger things i know there were some people being very creepy to him he's 17 and it's not right whether it's a you know teenage boy or girl it's just it's gross and it all leads into this normalization of kind of rushing teenagers to grow up. And we see this too with child beauty pageants where they've literally portrayed sex workers during performances. There's an episode of Toddlers and Tiaras where a little girl is dressed up like Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. And we all know she plays a hooker in that. And it's really pushed on young girls to wear these inappropriate clothes and to dance in an adult manner in the beauty pageant circuit, as well as like everyday life. We see baby bikinis and crop tops and like really tight jeans for kids. And Kim Kardashian's daughter North a few years ago was sexualized at the age of two after paparazzi took a picture of her licking a lollipop. And like I said, this all leads to girls feeling the need or wanting to be sexual at a young age and causing them to just grow up too fast. It seemed like Epstein felt like it was his right to have access to young girls. Maybe if that's his wealth or just how he was as a person, who knows. But I did see a headline. I'm sure, I don't know, this is just a rumor, but it said he would, quote, physically shake with desire around young girls. How creepy is that? And going off the topic of sexualization of children and his sex crimes, we would be remiss not to mention rape culture. So the victim blaming that the defense did is is just one example of rape culture. Rape culture is an environment where rape is prevalent and sexual violence is normalized and excused, particularly in the media and pop culture. And other examples of rape culture are the notion that men are just hyper-sexual, aggressive beings that can't control their needs, uh, not taking rape allegations seriously, making rape jokes, and tolerance of sexual harassment. Again, this makes it harder for victims of sexual violence to come forward and feel supported. This is a culture that also helps to protect rapists and criminals. Dell and I both believe victims and accusers of Jeffrey Epstein. One of the reasons given for Epstein's ability to get away with his alleged crimes 
and the leniency that he was given for his convicted crimes is having blackmail material on the people that obtained his services. Epstein's level of control and manipulation is almost indescribable. He was seemingly able to make anyone trust him and would later use information against people. Blackmail involves a threat to do something that would cause a person to suffer embarrassment or financial loss unless that person meets certain demands. The threat might include to reveal private information about a person that is likely to cause them embarrassment, to reveal sensitive information that is likely to cause financial harm, to accuse a person falsely of a crime or to report a person's involvement in a crime. Like we learned in Johnny's case, victims of human trafficking are forced to do illegal things so they won't come forward. It's rumored that Epstein had a sexual relationship with Les Wexner and we can assume that was definitely used against Les Wexner if that is to be true, especially since Epstein at one point stole over $40 million from him and Wexner never pressed charges. And we saw how he made a donation to the Palm Beach Police Department when he initially moved to Palm Beach. And he clearly did that because he thought this would help him somehow. And he also donated to different universities and scientific research funds as well, which I'm sure connected him to the cream of the crop, whether it was other rich people, intelligent people, people working on things. He was very narcissistic. That's a running theme in everything everything I've seen about him. So I'm sure that made him feel good too. Like he was part of something, even though he was a big fat phony. And Virginia Roberts Dufresne claimed that Epstein told her he quote, owned the Palm Beach Police Department and that many people owed him favors. So if that's not blackmail and, you know, shows his level of how he thinks he can get away with anything, I don't know what does. We mentioned how his homes were covered in cameras and it was likely that he used these cameras to spy on people and get information. I wonder if he set people up to do dubious and illegal things just to have something so he could have something to hold over someone in case the time came. I do think that that is definitely a strong possibility because why else would you have so many concealed cameras? I feel like, and this is just my opinion, that he had them concealed because he didn't want people to know that they were on film. Because, you know, a lot of times when people don't think they're being filmed, they're definitely freer with their words and their actions. So I think he definitely was doing some entrapment of people that use his properties and his automobiles, his planes. I definitely agree. And I also wonder, too, if he kind of just got off on watching people to an extent. Like, nothing would surprise me with him, honestly. No, it doesn't. And there was an element of Epstein liking to watch because Maria Farmer had stated that that's why he had the media room. So when people were in different massage rooms, he was able to see what was going on. I don't think that he was paranoid about getting caught. I think he was just really using all of this for his own gain. Going off of his power and the element of blackmail, we know that Epstein was friendly with many rich and powerful people, including current President Donald Trump, former President Bill Clinton, disgraced movie producer Harvey Weinstein, defense attorney Alan Dershowitz, Prince Andrew, media mogul Mort Zuckerman, Woody Allen, and Stephen Hawking, to name a few. That's so many powerful people involved, too. And we saw many of these people downplay their relationship to Epstein as well. Both Donald Trump and Bill Clinton claimed they hadn't spoken to him in like 10 years or so. All of these people are just individuals who knew or interacted with Epstein, his wealth and his properties. They aren't necessarily criminals who took part 
part in this sex trafficking. And Virginia Roberts says some people visited his island just to have lunch and she didn't see certain people engage in inappropriate behavior with underage girls. There are so many people that he knows. I wonder who is involved that we just don't know about yet. I hate to you know, like play that guessing game, but I feel like when information comes out, we're really going to be shocked by some of what we hear. What are your thoughts on that? So I definitely think that he is just a small piece. Like one of his alleged victims said, he's just a small piece in a larger puzzle because it's hard to believe that they just had one person who was arranging their illicit affairs with underage girls. Yeah, that's a really good point, Del. And we know that these people, one of the things they have in common is wealth, power, notoriety, all of that. I'm sure there's people, you know, kissing their asses all the time in any regard. Yes, and we do need to note that several of the people have publicly denied the claims that they hire Epstein to find underage girls for them. Lawyer Alan Dertzowitz has insisted that he never engaged with underage girls. He says that he never met his alleged victims. President Trump has flip-flopped. He's quoted as saying that Epstein is a lot of fun to be with. It's even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do. He also added that many of them were on the younger side because of course he did. The president now says that he knew Epstein was a creep and he had kicked him out of the Mar-a-Lago and banned him after he was called hitting on the teenage daughter of a member and making them feel uncomfortable. He's flip-flopped so much on his association with Epstein because he claims that Epstein wasn't a member, but then it turns out that he was. And when we talk about uh, these powerful people getting accused, we can't forget about Prince Andrew, who did a BBC interview to help prove his innocence, but it completely backfired. And I'm not really sure why he did the interview. The royal family is known to keep quiet on allegations against them. Just think of how long they've kept quiet about the Princess Diana rumors. So the fact that they would have him on national TV seemingly unprepped for the questions that he was going to be asked just seemed like a weird move. Yeah, it's almost like desperation. Because really, what was going to come out of it? No one thought he was going to say like, yes, I knew her and yes, her allegations are true. What was the point? It was nothing different than what he could just say in a written statement. Yeah, it was so strange to me. I watched the interview and I said to myself, like, this is from a PR perspective, horrible. But from a wanting the truth perspective, I looked at it like, hmm, maybe you aren't as innocent as you're trying to claim to be. Epstein's case is really similar to the Gosh case and the Franklin Credit Union scandal. All of them involve powerful, well-known people, including politicians, being connected to horrible crimes and their actions being covered up. There's allegations of child sex abuse and trafficking of minors across state lines. We see the police trying to investigate, but outside forces stopping them and essentially erasing accusations. And like we said earlier, discrediting witnesses. Paul Benassi was discredited constantly and even indicted for perjury. Many of Epstein's victims in Florida were blamed and shamed by his defense team. Since Epstein's death, the public has wondered if his alleged victims will truly receive justice. Many of them did not get their day in court, but they were able to read victim impact statements at a hearing before the case was dismissed. I believe it was over a dozen that was able to speak and share their stories. This was allowed by Judge Berman. Several victims also shared statements during Jeffrey's bail hearing. Some victims were angry that they won't be able to face him in court, 
but some felt seen and validated just by reading their statements. It was a cathartic moment for them, and there was a sense that every victim supported one another. Some have even said that their healing can finally begin. The case really came to a head and got attention during the Me Too era that we're living in, where victims of sexual assault and sexual violence, both men and women, feel empowered to come forward. We saw many celebrities come forward to share their experiences with sexual violence, some with Harvey Weinstein, who we mentioned earlier. There was the Larry Nassar U.S. gymnastics sexual abuse case, and the phrase Me Too was coined by activist Tarana Burke years before the movement gained mass attention. A silver lining to this story is that there is a lot of attention now on the victims and how they were victimized by Epstein and the criminal justice system for not taking their case seriously or taking action when they initially made accusations. The case even caused the Department of Justice to acknowledge their shortcomings when it comes to crime victims and they've promised to better train prosecutors regarding the rights of victims. Some believe that Judge Berman allowing the victims to speak will now be a precedent for victims and it's the epitome of the way they should be treated. There is actually an Epstein victim's compensation program that was set up and in June 2020 it began accepting claims for from alleged victims. It's hard for us as outsiders to say if the victims have gotten justice. It's really up to them and how they feel like they can heal. I really hope that they all are on the path to healing and that you know they're getting services they need or the support that they really need to move past it. I think they have a lot of public support which I'm sure makes it easier too. And while we're happy for the victims to have some solace, we cannot ignore the corruption that happened in this case. So we had the New York City law enforcement and FBI officials ignoring allegations made by Maria Farmer in 1996. And luckily, we did have the Palm Beach police do a massive investigation against Epstein, but it is likely that someone in their department tipped him off about the raid that was coming up on his home. The Florida state and federal prosecutors were too lenient on Epstein in 2006, and this actually caused Chief Michael Ritter to send personalized letters to the victims and their families saying he was taking the case to the FBI. And Ritter also said, quote, this was a financially successful, smart, capable, well-networked, and well-financed individual who built an organization around him that supported his criminal enterprise. And it's pretty clear that this organization included people that had political connections and other very powerful people, likely with government and law enforcement connections too. The case was essentially gone after Alex Acosta met with Epstein's attorneys in 2009 and Acosta and the lawyers met outside of his offices in secret meetings in places like hotel rooms. So definitely some shady business you can assume happened. FBI members working on the case had Epstein's attorneys email them on private emails as well. And people assumed he got the major sweetheart deal because of his lawyer's political connections. We talked about this immunity and the plea deal. They were completely unheard of. I can't think of anything similar to this. And many victims claimed prosecutors didn't tell them of this deal, which is an action that actually violated the Crime Victims Act of the United States. Like we said before, Epstein was found hanging in his cell. His death was determined to be a suicide, but the public widely believes this information is false. 60 Minutes did their own investigation, which showed pictures of Epstein's dead body, and their experts felt like his death was more likely a homicide than suicide. There's a lot of evidence, including the official autopsy, that points to a homicide. Mark Epstein, Jeffrey's older brother, 
had a forensic pathologist do their own analysis and they thought the way his hyal bone was fractured would be rare for a suicide by hanging. The pathologist compared it to other hanging suicides and none had this unique bone fracture. What makes some people agree that suicide was the case is that Epstein signed a will two days before his death. In the will, he put his assets into a trust fund, which made it harder for victims to get restitution. This isn't uncommon for very wealthy people to save their money in trust. Keep in mind, he was allowed to do this after recently being taken off suicide watch. Epstein was said to be scared for his safety in prison and claimed that he had been attacked by his cellmate. Allegations that the powerful people here arranged girls for one of him silence in order to protect themselves. Does anyone remember hashtag Clinton body count? There's theories that state that he was killed by a hitman in prison or that a guard was paid to kill him. Some actually believe that he's still alive. It is important to note that the prison that he was in was underfunded and understaffed and that cameras were allegedly not working at the time of his death. Are any security cameras ever working? Like, that's in so many cases. I mean, they're working when they want to catch a black man doing a crime. They're definitely mm -hmm. working then. Good point, Del. Touche. What do you think of the whole thing? Do you think he actually died by suicide? Do you think someone took him out? I definitely am on the side of Epstein did not kill himself. You know, I'm not going to speculate on who actually killed him, but he has over 1,000 people that probably wanted him dead. Yeah, that's so powerful. And I don't really know what to think because when I first heard all of this, I definitely thought, you know, there's no way that he killed himself. But I mean, if he really was on suicide watch before and the fact that he, um, you know, was signing that will so close to his death, that does make me think maybe he did, you know, he just wanted out and he hung himself. I will say part of me wonders if he thought that he would be able to get out of jail somehow and be found innocent because, I mean, we saw it in the past and even in the Netflix documentary, they mentioned that his deal, he thought that wasn't a good deal, that he thought it was like terrible and that he didn't want to go to jail. Like we keep saying, he just, he seems to find a way out of everything. So I, it would kind of surprise me if he really did think that he wasn't going to get out somehow so then the next question is what do you think is going to happen to his alleged co-conspirator i'm honestly worried for her safety um i feel like the same thing could easily happen to her uh, she was on suicide watch too i think so i hope she's shaking in her boots honestly she's just as evil as him and I'm so, so glad they caught her. She deserves to go to jail and suffer, frankly, in my opinion. What are your feelings? I want her to be uncomfortable. I want her to feel nervous. And I want her to feel one-fifth, at least, of the pain and horrors that the girls that she trafficked, allegedly, felt when they were being victimized. Do you think she's gonna, like, fess up to anything and expose anyone? No. Yeah, I kind of don't either, unfortunately. You need to have a certain level of shame to want to confess, a certain level of remorse. And I don't see her having any shame or any remorse in what she did. Yeah. Like we said earlier, Maxwell was arrested earlier this year. And if anyone remembers, she was on the run for a very long time and no one knew where she was uh, at the time of Epstein's arrest. She was eventually arrested. Police actually saw through a window when they went to arrest her and she ignored their order and hid in another room. I think people thought she was going to try to escape too. Her indictment 
alleges a pattern of behavior that seemingly made the girls feel comfortable and helped normalize their sexual abuse. Once in jail, she complained about her conditions, which included solitary confinement and being subject to suicide watch protocols. She also requested access to a computer, which, bitch, you're in jail. They're not going to give you all that. I mean, I know they gave Epstein all that the first time around, but she's not so lucky, thankfully. A 418-page document from her 2016 deposition in a civil case brought by Virginia Roberts was recently made public, and in the document, there are many redactions to protect the privacy of others included. However, some information around the crimes of Maxwell and Epstein have been released since the deposition took place, which gives us a clear idea of who the lawyers may be referring to, and an example of this This is the mention of a puppet, and Virginia Roberts claimed that Prince Andrew was gifted a puppet in his likeness by Maxwell, and he used the puppet to grope girls. And Maxwell continually denies recruiting girls in the statement. She denies taking part in orgies and other activities and having any knowledge of Epstein having a scheme to recruit minors for sexual massages. Um, did you read any of the deposition, Dell? I did. Yeah, I did too. It's a lot to get through. You can find it easily. I think we're going to link it. But we both read some of it. And to me, she really seems like she's playing dumb at some point when asked certain questions, which is kind of similar to what Jeffrey Epstein did. They asked if he knew in one of the depositions. They asked if he knew Virginia Roberts. And he says, like, can you spell her name for me? And the lawyer is actually like, it's a common name. It's Virginia. <laughs> it's a freaking state. Come on. <laughs> um And she kind of plays dumb to me when she says she doesn't understand the use of the term female. She also backtracks on whether or not she knew Virginia was a minor and on a few other questions as well. And she also states that Virginia is lying about being sexually abused and being forced to have sex with men. Maxwell's trial is set for July 2021, so stay tuned, everybody. So, Jenny, what are your final thoughts on the Jeffrey Epstein case along with the Johnny Gosh case? and the other cases of human sex trafficking that we've talked about over the past two episodes. These things are kind of hard for me to look into. Um, I I don't know why. The Johnny Gosh case really gets me. I guess we've just seen so many pictures of Johnny. What gets me the most about that is we don't know what happened to him for a fact. We don't know where he is, if he's still alive. And there are so many graphic details about what happened to him and the horrors that he could have faced and human trafficking in general and child sex abuse just really gets to me. It's hard for me to look into these. I'm sure it's hard for some people too. And I didn't know a ton about the Jeffrey Epstein case going into it because I do kind of like to avoid these things, but it's really important. Human trafficking is becoming more well-known and it needs to be well-known because it happens all over the world in every state in the country as well. Um, like, I said, I think Jeffrey Epstein is evil. He's guilty. How many women have to accuse him of something before we can think he's guilty? It's it's just disgusting that people in power and people with so much money can get away with so much. And we see that in both of these cases too. And I absolutely agree with you. I think both of these cases shine a light on the horrors that happen in this country every day. If you or someone you know has been the victim of human trafficking or you suspect that someone close to you has been the victim. We urge you to contact the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-373-7888. They also have a text hotline that you can use and that number is 233-733 and you can text help or info. 
That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening, and please let us know in the comments what you think about Jeffrey Epstein and who you think is going to be exposed by Ghislaine Maxwell. Join us next week for a much lighter case um, that will have a drinking game to accompany it, something a little different from us. Make sure you click the subscribe button. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube every Wednesday with a new episode, and be sure to leave us a five-star rating and review. Follow us on Instagram at Crime Corruption Cocktails and on Twitter at Charade Inc. And please consider donating to our Patreon. This will help us get better equipment and bring higher quality content to you. We appreciate any amount you can give. This is Jenny and Dell signing off. Stay safe.